the very final paragraph of the, the policymaker summary is as follows. The cumulative scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health. Any further delay in concerted anticipatory global action on adaptation and mitigation will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. Open brackets, very high confidence, close brackets, full stop, end of quote. Um, so the very high confidence after each of their statements um, in, in, the, in, in the technical summary, they would put you know, the level of confidence in, in their opinion, kind of their scientific opinion. Very high confidence is the very highest level. So it's not good. Um, and according to Greenpeace, the five key takeaways of the whole report were, number one, uh, climate risks are appearing faster and will get more severe sooner. Two, we are not prepared, even for the current impacts, and it is already costing lives. Three, more warning, sorry, more warming brings more problems. Four, we must restore nature and protect at least 30% of the earth for it to protect us. Five, this, the 2020s, is the critical decade for securing a livable, equitable, and sustainable future. As Greta Thunberg has said, we can't save the world by playing by the rules, because the rules have to be changed. Everything needs to be changed, and it has to start today. Or in the words of Jonah, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed, which was Jonah's prophecy to Nineveh. Now, the story of Jonah is an extremely well-known story. Even if you, you didn't grow up through uh, Sunday school, you may well kind of know of the story. And it's also a brilliant story. Um, a few Christmases ago, Lindsay bought me uh, a big book with, with the 100 best short stories. Um, and the very first one is the book of Job. Um, and we don't know when it was written, um, but it probably related to a period around 750 BC, um, at a time when actually the, the Assyrian nation was not going through a good patch. Um, so the story is as follows. First and foremost, Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, which is one of the big empires off to the east of, of, uh, of Israel, um, to preach against it because their wickedness had come before, before God. Uh, two, Jonah hears the word of God that he must go east, and he goes west. Um, to get as far away as possible. So he gets a ship over the Mediterranean. Uh, there's a storm, kind of this is the action for storm. Um, and uh, the, the crew work out that, um, work out that Jonah's the problem. Uh, so they, they throw him overboard, um, and, uh, as you do. Um, and he's then swallowed by uh, a great fish. Um, and inside the fish, Jonah repents. Um, and the fish vomits him onto a beach. Um, God uh, then gives Jonah a second chance to go to Nineveh, um, and Jonah on this occasion goes, still reluctantly, to Nineveh. And his message to the Ninevites is perfunctory, I think it's fair to say. As I've already said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 
No explanation, no details, that's it. 40 more days, you're going to be destroyed. Um, and the Ninevites believed God, and they repented. The people first, and then the king. And, uh, and the king gave this edict. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. I'd like to see them put sackcloth on a big cow. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, let, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. That's good news, isn't it? Not for Jonah. He didn't like this at all. He becomes very angry with God. Because actually he wanted to see Nineveh destroyed. So he becomes very angry and he says, Oh, I know that you're a gracious and compassionate God. As though that's a bad thing. Um, slow to anger and abounding in love. Who relents from sending calamity. Um, and <laughs> so that's a complaint. And you could just imagine God there going, Is any of that a problem, Jonah? Um, anyway, so, so God then causes a vine to grow up, which gives shade to, to Jonah. But then overnight, the vine dies. And once again, Jonah got angry about this. Jonah was a very, very angry man. Um, and so Jonah then complains about God. You know, I'd rather die. Kind of now that you've removed this vine, I'd rather die. Uh, and, and the book concludes with God saying, you, Jonah, have been concerned about this vine though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And with that question hanging in the air, the book ends. And the structure of Job is a, a, a beautiful story, uh, and the structure is very neat, and it can be described in, in, in two ways. The first one is splitting it into two parts. And part one is Jonah's commission, Jonah's disobedience, consequence, Jonah's reaction, God's reaction. And then part two is exactly the same, other than Jonah's obedience rather than his disobedience. So it's Jonah's commission, Jonah's obedience, consequence, Jonah's reaction, God's reaction beautifully set out story even more simply than that it can be split into four so running from God running to God running with God running against God um, and when you hear Jonah preached kind of these are the normal lessons that you hear so don't run away from God which when you think about it is a fairly obvious thing um, cross-cultural evangelism this is the only example in the Old Testament of evangelism to a different culture um, the power of preaching um, is often used for that. And also, obviously, it's used as a, as a representation of, of the grace and love of God. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus refers to Jonah when people go up to Jesus and say, give us a, give us a miracle. And he says, the only miracle you're going to get is the miracle of Jonah. Um, and that's, you know, so the three days and nights that, that Jonah was in the big fish uh, is an analogy for the three days and nights when Jesus' arrest, his death, and the resurrection. So, and when we look at the book of Jonah, we often put ourselves in the role of Jonah, obviously, don't we? 
Um, so, and we, the sermon is often, don't be like Jonah, or be like Jonah, depending on the bit of Jonah that we're talking about. And that's understandable. The book is, after all, called Jonah. Um, and the story is about Jonah. It's not really about anyone else. It's about Jonah. So, so it's obvious that, by and large, you put yourself in the position of Jonah. Um, another standard approach is to, put, to, to treat the story as though others are in the position of the Ninevites. <laughs> we are Jonah, but others are Ninevites. And we call upon them, whoever them may be, to repent, to follow Jesus. But today, I want to put us in the position of the Ninevites. We are the Ninevites. Because often we preach about the prophets in a non-prophetic manner. So we pick out these nice lessons, like don't run away from God, or how lovely and gracious God is. But the message of the prophets is always, either literally or metaphorically, change or die. If you continue to do what you're doing, then the consequence will be, literally or metaphorically, death. If you change, the consequence will be, literally or metaphorically, life. Jonah, as I've already said, put it a little bit more bluntly. 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. The IPCC also puts it bluntly. The cumulative scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health. Any further delay in concerted anticipatory global action on adaptation and mitigation will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all, open brackets, very high confidence, close brackets. Now, you may respond to that by saying, a science-based statement about the future of our environment is not equivalent to a biblical prophecy. But biblical prophecies are precisely about practical and political issues. As we heard from Dave Sermon last week, Amos was effectively stating, your religious stuff is worthless unless it is consistent with your action. The real issues are issues of justice and injustice, the complacency of the rich and the plight of the poor. Well, what we know from the IPCC report is that climate change is the biggest issue of justice and injustice in the world today. It is the biggest issue affecting the global poor over the next few decades. And the evidence that the climate crisis disproportionately affects the poor is, is absolutely enormous. The IPCC report talks about reduced food and water security, with the largest impacts observed in many locations and on communities in Africa, Asia, Central and South America, small islands, uh, which are defined, um, and the Arctic. Um, roughly half of the world, apparently, roughly half of the world's population currently experiences severe water scarcity for at least some part of the year due to climatic or non-climatic drivers. Housing, risk of flooding, disease, access to water, access to food, all of these things will be affected by climate crisis and will be disproportionately felt by the poor. In cities, the observed impacts on health, livelihoods and key infrastructure caused by heat waves and air pollution will be concentrated amongst the economically and socially marginalized urban residents. I could go on and on, 
And actually, I genuinely do refer you to the IPC, IPCC report, um, the shortest one. Um, just skim it. Um, because there is no ask, there is nothing that I can say which will do justice to what is in that report. Um, and no article in any newspaper that I've read does justice to it. It is flabbergasting. All of that alone should be enough to mobilize the church. But in addition, there is the impact on the environment upon what we would call God's creation. I'm currently reading a book <coughs> called uh, Silent Earth by Dave Goulson. He's into bumblebees. Um, and it's a book about the insect apocalypse. Now, between 1990 and 2016, there was a nature reserve in Germany, which by and large wasn't changed. No one had done anything to it. No pesticides on it, no insecticides, no nothing. But the insect biomass in that 26-year period had fallen by... So the insect biomass is if you put all the insects on, on the reserve onto a set of scales, how much they would weigh, had fallen by 76%. That's a nature reserve. And that's starting in 1990. So if you go back 100 years, it's much, much larger than 76%. <clears throat> this is because we are deliberately poisoning our environment with pesticides, herbicides, fungicides alongside habitat destruction, climate change, air pollution, light pollution, invasive species, and other factors that we don't yet understand. We are putting our insect world, which forms the basis of our entire ecosystem, under incredible stress. Did you know, for example, uh, commonly used flea treatments for pets uh, include neurotoxic insecticides. So these treatments are, are dripped onto the neck of your dog or cat every month, um, and are absorbed into the pet, rendering the whole pet toxic to blood-sucking insects. That's how it works. Now, the dose, the amount that you dribble onto the neck of a, of a, a medium-sized dog, is enough to kill, well, how many honeybees do you think that a few drops of flea treatment on the neck of a medium-sized dog will kill? Name the bees. 50? Uh, up? No, 60 million. <clears throat> 60 million honeybees. Now think about that the next time your dog leaps into the local stream. The Environment Agency has discovered that the toxins from flea treatments were contaminating 100% of the 20 streams that they analysed. The contamination is highest in streams downstream of sewage plants. And the theory is that when you wash your dog, the neurotoxin is washed off into the bathwater, which then ends up in our sewage system. Now, surely that sort of stuff should also mobilise the church as well. I mean, we're saying that this is the Anthropocene era now because, because the effects on everything are determined by, by humans. We're entering the, the sixth extinction phase. Now, if ex we are people of creation. If extinction doesn't rile us, what is going to rile us? Um, this sort of stuff should mobilize the church. It is God's created world that we are destroying. If that is not a spiritual issue, 
I have no idea what is. The gospel is the good news. Well, climate change is not good news. And resisting climate change is good news. So getting to net zero, I would say, is the greatest spiritual challenge of this generation. And yes, it is a spiritual challenge because everything is spiritual, partly because of that, but primarily because it reflects our nature of our relationship with God and how we react to these things. Today, it is predicted to reach 33 or 34 degrees in Bristol. So let's use 33.5 degrees just as an example. That's just over 92 degrees Fahrenheit for those who speak in old language or are American. Um, and in the year of my birth, so, so 33.5, keep that in mind. Um, in the year of my birth, 1967, I know, it's hard to believe, um, but the, the hottest day of the year in the whole of the UK was 30.2. Uh, in 1974, it never got above 28 degrees anywhere in the UK at any point during the year. Between 1967 and 2002, today, in Bristol, would have been the hottest day in the whole of the UK in 31 out of 36 years. Now, it's not even the hottest day this week. And we are not the hottest place in the country, and this week is not the hottest week of the year. So we are the Ninevites. And Greta Thunberg is Jonah. As she says, adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. And did you know that being an environmentalist is currently one of the most dangerous jobs in the world? In the 21st century, more than 1,000 environmental activists have been murdered. And the rate is increasing. So in 2015, 185 environmental activists were murdered. In 2019, it was 212. And in 2020, it was 227. And more than half of those were in three countries, Colombia, Mexico, and the Philippines. Earlier this year, this hit the news uh, because Bruno Pereira, uh, an expert in Amazonian indigenous peoples, was murdered in Brazil alongside Dom Phillips, who was a British journalist. Now, I do not say these things to depress you, all right? Um, I'm aware that climate anxiety is a genuine thing, and, you know, if you don't have it, I'm, I'm very pleased for you, but it's, you know, I think anyone who looks into this will have climate anxiety. Um, but people feel anxiety because they feel as though they can't do anything about it. But if we as Christians, cannot confront the world as it is and retain our hope, then who can? We believe in a God who can change things, who can stop calamity, to use the words of, Job, uh, sorry, words of Jonah. And we can do something about it. Now, first and foremost, it is important to have a rounded view of where we are, and this is often lost in in these sorts of discussions. Statistically, if one had the choice of living anywhere in the world at any time of history, you would still choose the developed world in 2022. Only 200 years ago, child mortality was at over 50%. I think in London it was 75%. Um, 75% of children did not get to adulthood. <clears throat> now, 
Now, globally, it's below 10%. And in the developed world, it's less than 1%. And that's just one metric. So in the last 100 years, we've seen incredible improvements in the reduction in poverty, percentage terms of reduction in poverty. Health, just think about the eradication of smallpox. In the 20th century, it's estimated that 300 million people died of smallpox. In the 21st century, it's zero. That is incredible. Improvements in living standards, food production, access to clean water and toilet facilities and so on. It may not always feel like it, but now is absolutely the best time ever to be alive. And in saying that, I'm, I'm not diminishing individual circumstances. Many people are personally suffering. But, but as an average, statistically, 2022 in a developed country is the best time ever to be alive. But the IPCC report makes it clear that the consequences of our actions are catching up with us. A lot of our benefits and our developments are based on, on fossil fuels, um, and the consequences of burning fossil fuels are catching up with us. And something now has to change. And I think that the response of the church should be the same as the response of the Ninevites. All right? So, point number one. Note that it was the people of Nineveh who responded first. Now, we may feel powerless, but we are not powerless. We have the power to educate ourselves. We have the power to educate each other. We have the power to make changes, whether that is to become a vegetarian or at least to reduce meat and dairy intake, to travel less, to use public transport more, to recycle, and so on and so forth. We have the power to speak on social media platforms. We have the power to give money to organizations that help in the fight against climate change and the consequences of climate change. Tear Fund, World Land Trust, La Rocha, and so on and so forth. If you're interested, there's a website called givewell.com uh, that analyzes the whole range of charities and assesses which one does most good for the poor per pound that you give it. So, and the ones at the top of the pile at the moment are ones that distribute malaria medicines, malaria nets, supplements, for vitamin A deficiency, childhood vaccines, deworming, and cash, interestingly, just straightforward cash transfers to people in extreme poverty, which is, does the most good quickest. Um, two, if you have a specific voice, use it. So I'm an insurance lawyer, um, and for the last two years, I've hosted an insurance podcast, uh, Insurance Covered. It's very, very good. Um, um, and I'm increasingly realizing as I talk to people that uh, the, the, the fundamental role that insurance has to play in changing behaviours and in providing protection to people for the consequences of climate change. That the, the protection gap, all those many, many millions of people in the world who do not have insurance and therefore cannot cope with crisis, um, is one of the biggest problems facing it. So insurance is part of the solution. It's also part of the problem, but it, it, it needs to be part of the solution. Um, and it's incumbent upon me, as a podcast host, albeit of a small podcast with you know, a thousand people who listen to it regularly, um, it's incumbent upon me to use that voice and to encourage change as I speak with guests who, who are far more important. Um, maybe you're an employee of a company. Well, well raise issues with, with, with your board of directors um, and your managers and whatever. Challenge decisions that are being made, um, whether it's you know, plastic or emissions or, or whatever it might be. We all, we all have a voice wherever it is that we are. Three, and of course, as Christians, we can pray. Um, and it's interesting to note that the Ninevites immediately responded with, with, with fasting. 
Um, they had an awareness that they had to get themselves right with God. Now, the problems facing Nineveh are not the problems that we face now, but we too need to seek God and seek his wisdom. I think we also need to discuss our theology. Um, for too long, our definition of salvation has been too narrow, kind of limited to getting into heaven. But the prophets made it clear that salvation is linked to justice. And any theology of salvation that does not include climate change horribly misses the point. Similarly, when we talk about the good news, the gospel of Jesus, it has to include the message that we stand against the bad news of climate change and extinction. A much bigger hope that I have is that perhaps climate change can be the issue over which the church rediscovers its radical voice. In the past, it radically stood against slavery. It radically stood against um, abuse of employees in the trade union movement. It radically stood against child labor. But now it's become a reactionary voice. It reacts to issues rather than... A ra Perhaps climate change can be the moment where the church regains its radical, world-transforming voice. Can you imagine the power of two billion Christians speaking with one voice on this issue, particularly if we work alongside other religions? Four, after the people of Nineveh responded, the king of Nineveh was provoked to respond. One of the reasons we so often feel powerless is because we know that our decisions need to be made, you know, our decisions, our little decisions, are going, are going to change little bits. But, but the big decisions need to be made at the political level. And we often feel that there's no point in recycling our plastic cartons or kind of walking for one particular journey rather than driving, uh, doing our little bit. Um, there's no point in that if our governments continue to provide subsidies to fossil fuel companies. And on one level, that's, that's correct. But the interesting thing from Jonah is that the actions of the Ninevites provoked the actions of government. And our actions will eventually, eventually provoke our politicians to do something. Um, and they already are to some extent. Do, do we really think that our leaders would be doing anything at all if it weren't for, for public pressure? Um, having said that, and please forgive me for saying something about current politics, but the current conservative leadership contest is utterly pathetic in its failure to deal with environmental issues. More time has been spent on Liz Truss's earrings or Rishi Sunak's shoes than about climate change. It is embarrassing and it is appalling. And Labour are no better, so that isn't a party political discussion. Um, it's just, it is an embarrassing situation that we find ourselves in which puts the emphasis on the people to force our politicians to do something. Five, this failure on the part of our political and business leaders uh, can be depressing, um, but the message of the Bible is that one person, one prophet, can change things. Um, for those of us who think we can do nothing, all you have to do is look at Greta Thunberg. She's, only, she's still only 19, with autism, obsessive compulsive disorder, and selective mutism. Yet she has spoken truth to world powers and has inspired millions to be activists. As an aside, I also found out during research for this that one of her middle names is Tintin, uh, which makes me love her even more. Um, at the end of uh, Jonah, God says this, 
Nineveh has more than 120,000 people. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And my final point is this. As Jonah says earlier on, we know that we have a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. We know that God has concern for the 8 billion or however many people who live on this planet and for his wider creation. If we align ourselves with God's concern for this planet, if we listen to the prophets of climate change, if we change our individual behaviours, if our governments make wise decisions, then perhaps, just perhaps, we will avoid the calamity of climate change. But it begins with us. In humility, coming before the Father and saying, I pray, forgive us, Father. Help us to change so that we align ourselves with your compassion, with your grace, with your concern for the world and its population. Lord, help us to listen to the prophets and to change as the Ninevites did. Amen.